Evangelical Union's last public meeting for semester one. Can't believe it's already June. My name is Steph Jard. I'm a fifth year arts law student. Um, and I'm also one of the female vice presidents of the EU. Um, it's already June. Uh, it's the last week of classes. I hope that you're not too traumatised by the assessments that you've been um, buried in. Um, but I hope that over Stuvac you can study hard in the knowledge that at the end of it, at the end of exams, there's ANCON to look forward to, which is really exciting. That's right. ANCON, if you're not uh, sure what that is, it's just the annual conference that the EU holds. Uh, it's off campus and there's hundreds of people. Um, we, we dig into the Word of God. It's a great and fantastic week. So if, if you're not sure and you haven't registered yet, I really encourage you to ask your Howie or ask anyone, ask me afterwards why you should go. Um, hurry because um, the, there are two spaces you can get. You can get a place in a dormitory or a place in an ensuite. The dorm spaces, which are cheaper, are, are almost gone. So you really want to get onto that. Um, so if you're hesitant about registering, come and chat to me afterwards. Um, but Rowan, if you want to jump up, Rowan's going to give us a bit of a, an explanation because I don't know about you, but I've been a bit unsure as to what eschatology is. I don't really know what it is. Could you give us a bit of an explanation, please? Sure. Thanks, Deb. Okay, so what is eschatology about? It's about what Christians think about the end, the future, and I thought to try to give you a bit of a taste of that. Since we're in sort of exam season or about to, I thought I'd give you a pop quiz. Here are seven questions that I have written and posed, and I want to know if you know the answers to them. If you don't know the answers to these questions, then you probably should be coming to annual conference because these are all questions that I've sort of drawn out of the scriptures trying to understand together. First question, heaven, why is there no marriage in heaven? According to Jesus, there's no marriage in heaven, but doesn't that then mean that being in heaven must be better than sex? Right, sex is awesome and so surely heaven is sort of even better than what we experience now, so therefore surely being in heaven is better than sex, but what would that actually be like? Okay, if I've made you start thinking and you know an answer to that, then maybe you should come to annual conference and think about that question for a little bit. The second question, hell, eternal conscious torment or annihilation? What does the Bible actually say? Because there's Christians who hold both like one position or the other. What does the Bible actually say? And um, probably a more profound and difficult question, how can a God of love send people to hell anyway? Have you ever been asked that question? Have you ever thought about that question? Do you have a good answer for that question? Because it's a pretty common question. If not, then maybe you should come to annual conference to try and work it out together. Uh, next. Uh, who's clicking this? You or me? You are. Okay. Number three. Uh, the Christian hope is actually about life after heaven. Explain. May I say, if you don't get that, if you go, that doesn't make any sense to me, if you don't get that, then I don't think you've really understood what the New Testament says about your future, if you're a Christian. I actually think it talks about life after heaven. If you don't understand that, then you need to come to annual conference and talk with me. Number four. Okay. Now, here's one. The earth is a globe, which, which the fact that the earth is a globe is probably news to you if you're an art student, but it is. The earth is a globe and when Jesus returns, my question is how will the whole earth see him at once? 
which is the impression you get from the New Testament. Everyone will see him at once. That's not actually possible if it's a globe, right? Because if he comes from this way, and it's a globe, you can't see him from the other side. Unless it's some sort of weird Jesus eclipse. I don't know, but... Maybe that's why God invented live video streaming on the internet, so everyone can see Jesus at once. And if you go, well, that's just silly, who cares? Then this is my question to you. Are you living in some sort of make-believe Bible fairyland where what the Bible actually says doesn't need to actually fit with reality as you experience it and as you know it to be? Have you integrated what you understand about the actual physical world and what the Bible says about the future? If you haven't integrated that, let me say, that's going to cause you problems, big problems, down the track. Okay, question five. The entire book of Revelation. A red dragon, a beast with ten horns and seven heads, a great prostitute, a guy with a sword coming out of his mouth, a tat on his leg, and a road dripping in blood. What the heck is that about? Okay, next question. Six. The Bible looks forward with such excitement all the time. Why don't we long for the future with the same passion we see in the pages of Scripture? And what can we do to grow a passion for God's promises in our own life? That's a good question, isn't it? Come to annual conference, we'll talk about that together. Number seven, final question. The end, I think from Scriptures, is not a moment. The end is a person and his name is Jesus. Everything else is a footnote. Discuss. Provide practical application. There's your question. Maybe you should come along to annual conference and we can talk about these things together. Because these are some of the questions that we're going to try to address in five days together. Thanks. If that hasn't wet your appetite, then maybe this will. How about you... uh, (laughs) Welcome James with me. So, do you want to introduce a bit about yourself to these lovely people? I don't know. It's going to whet their appetite. I don't know if I do. Um, my name's James. James Edward Monaghan, if you're into whole names. Um, and I'm a first year arts law student. Cool. And so, I heard that you registered for Ancon. Is that, is that right? That's pretty accurate. Why did you do that? Mostly because of Boris. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Jack. How's it going? Um... A lot of people who I trust and respect and like very much told me to do it, so I did. And so what are you looking forward to most about Ancon? Um, look, lots of things. I reckon, um, I think I'm pretty excited about the talks, to be honest, because I think they're going to be pretty mind-exploiting. Um, and like one of my favourite bits in the Bible, I'm allowed to have a favourite, is right at the end of Revelation where it says there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I guess I kind of like want to know what that's going to be like, yeah. when that's going to come, all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Cool. Well, I look forward to seeing you there. Thank yeah, you, Jimmy. I will see you there. So, if you haven't registered for Ancon, get onto it. Um, if you're hesitant, have any questions, feel free to come and ask me. You would receive one of these guys if you came in. If you want to grab that out now, that would be excellent. It's a connect card if you can't see. Um, if you want to feel that out, that's just a way of us to to know who's here, how we can um, better tailor this ministry um, to to people that are actually coming here. So if you're a regular, just tick, I'm a regular. If you're new, welcome. It's so great you're here. Um, And this is just a way for us to get in touch with you. Um, 
as you're filling that in, I'm going to give you a bit of a taste of the theme night for ANCON. Annual conference every night, oh, not every night, every year, Wednesday night, there's a theme. In the past, it's been indie, there's been ravecon, there's been a Ciroc night, and this year, I've got the privilege of announcing that it is, in fact, Bollywood. So do you fill in those? Um, have a look. into the talk time. How about I just pray for us and ask for God's help? Pray with me. Father God, thank you that um, you are kind to us, that you care for us, that you love us enough to show us who you are. Lord, I ask that you would be at work in our hearts, that you'd be uh, coming us who are anxious about assessments and Lord, helping us to focus on you now. We pray that you'd speak through Rowan now. Amen. Well, good to see you. I'm glad that you made it here for week 13 at the public meeting. I want to ask you a little question as we get started, and the question is this. Who do you listen to and why? Who do you listen to and why? Uh, I presume you probably listen to your friends or your mates at some sort of level, but why do you listen to them? I hope that you listen to them because they have your best interests at heart. You genuinely trust them. And so you think, yep, they've got my interests at heart, they care about me at some sort of level, and so I listen to them. I hope that's why. Though I do notice sometimes that people listen to their friends, in inverted commas, or their mates, because actually they're just fearful of being ostracised. They're fearful of being on the outer, and so therefore they just want to fit in with a particular bunch of people, so they listen to them. They take in what they say, and they live that way in order just to fit in, out of fear, actually, rather than trust. Do you listen to your parents and why? Maybe you listen to your parents because that's the culturally expected thing to do 
Or maybe you listen to them because you think that shows a right sort of appropriate respect for your parents. Do you listen to the people you work for? Do you listen to the boss at work? I presume you probably do because they've got power. They've got power and power over you, so you listen to them. Who do you listen to and why? Do you listen to your lecturers? A little tip, it's always worth listening, it's always worth going to the very last lecture of any course. If you decide to skip the last lecture of a course, um, I'm sorry about that, uh, you could be in trouble because you never know what generous, kind-hearted lecturer might sort of just slip into that last lecture that might help you prepare for the quiz or the exam that's coming. I remember going to, I was in a lecture course once, and uh, the lecturer in the last lecture seemed to be covering an awful lot of material, a whole section of the syllabus that she hadn't covered yet. She crammed it into the last 50 minutes and at one particular point said, oh, you, you really should go away and read this particular work by this particular author. It's really fantastic. It's, it's, it's famous. You know, it's a classic. You should read that. I'm going, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I, of course, I went and read other stuff. And of course, got into the exam and I'd, I'd only prepared a set number of topics, you know, just to survive the paper. And I turned to the question on this particular person on this last lecture and of course, the, the question just said, according to this particular work, which was the one little work that she said, oh, it'd be great if you read that sometime. According to this work, what, and of course I'd never read it, but I hadn't prepared anything else. So I just made it up. <laughs> what did I think this famous person would have said in this very famous work? I'm sure that I completely pulled the wall over the lecturer. I'm sure they would have had no idea what actually was in the work that they were recommending. Clearly not. Okay. Who do you listen to? Why do you listen to them? I'm asking the question because as Christians, as people who actually, you know, speaking on behalf of the EU, as Christians, we listen to this guy called Jesus. But why do we listen to him? And whether or not you're a Christian, I want to pose to you today that you should listen to Jesus. Why should you listen to him? I think we normally listen to people because we think that they have some sort of meaningful relationship with us. You listen to the, your lecturer for your course because you have a meaningful relationship with that person in the sense of they're the lecturer for your course. But when you're walking around the uni, you walk past all sorts of lecture theatres and all sorts of lecturers, sometimes very great ones, are giving all sorts of talks. Do you bother to go in and listen to their wisdom? No, because they're in no meaningful relationship with you, so you can afford to ignore them. I'm suggesting to you that the person of Jesus is someone who, whether you know it or not, you are in a meaningful relationship with and therefore you ought to listen to him. You're in a meaningful relationship with this person, Jesus, because of who he is. Because of who he is. So what we're going to do today is look at a little section out of Luke's Gospel because we've been looking at this sort of in bits and pieces over the semester. We're going to look at this section of Luke's Gospel which starts at chapter 7, goes through to chapter 9, verse 50, as you can see up there on the board, under the heading of recognising Jesus. And really, through these chapters, it's a bit of a helicopter tour today, we're just going to fly across these chapters and I'm going to point out lots of stuff as we just zoom past. Because I think sometimes it's worth taking the big helicopter view to see how all the bits of Luke's story about Jesus fit together. And there's two particular things themes that run through these chapters. Two themes that run sort of in parallel and then they come together beautifully right at the end. So if I talk really fast, we'll get there. So I'll try to do that. But the two themes are this. One theme is, who is this Jesus? 
the question of Jesus' identity. The other theme through these chapters is, what do you do, what do you do with Jesus' words? Do you listen to him? What do you do with Jesus' words? These are the two themes. Who Jesus is, what do you do with his words? Now, why have I picked these particular chapters, this sort of section to look at? Uh, It's because the way Luke tells the story, they form a bit of a natural unit. In particular, when you get to chapter 9, verse 51, which is just after this section, there's a bit of, Luke gives a bit of a marker that something new is about to happen. To explain that, I just need to draw you a map. This is my map of the Mediterranean. That's the water. The Nile Delta. Over here, the land of Israel. Sea of Galilee, Red Sea, Jordan River. Okay? Jesus uh, did all of his earthly ministry in the land of Israel. The capital city of Israel is Jerusalem, sort of down here. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the next verse after our section, Luke says, Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He decides to head to Jerusalem. And the whole next section, next ten chapters of Luke's Gospel, are about the journey to Jerusalem. We're in the bit just before Jesus launches into that journey, which all takes place up here in the land of Galilee. So Jesus is moving around this land of Galilee, this area called Galilee, What's he doing? You'll read as we go through these chapters, he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, which is what he's been doing ever since way back in chapter 4. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And so what we're looking at is these twin themes as Jesus moves around this area of who is Jesus and what do you do with his words. And then he'll decide to head to Jerusalem. But that's for next semester. Okay, so I'm going to, because it's sort of the end of semester, I'm going to give you in some ways the main idea right now in one sentence, okay? So if you're sort of, you're reaching the end of your attention span, it's okay because here's the answer, right? Here's the answer right now. This is what it is. I think Luke's point in these chapters is this. When you recognise a truth about Jesus, when you recognise a truth about Jesus and you respond in trust, then you are on the right track even when it seems completely crazy. When you recognise the truth about Jesus and you respond in trust, you are on the right track, even though it seems entirely crazy. And I think we're going to see that illustrated time and time again just through these chapters. In fact, it's illustrated in the very first little window. Luke gives, I think, about 12 different episodes in this sort of journey around Galilee, this Galilean road trip, as I've called it. Now, I don't, I'm not got, going to have time to sort of go into all 12 uh, in any sort of detail, but let's look at the first one, get, get a bit of a flavour of it. So, I'm in Luke chapter 7. It'd be great to open it up or look on with the person next to you, call it up on your phone, etc. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum's a city up in this Galilean region, okay? There was a centurion servant whom his master valued highly who was ill and about to die. Now, centurions are not members of the people of Israel, right? They're, they're not Jews. So this guy was an outsider. This guy was not part of the people of God, nationally defined. So this guy is, you know, 
He hasn't got much hope, really, you would think, of being helped because he's an outsider. The centurion, verse 3, heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and they found the servant well. What do you take out of this little story? This guy's an outsider, but what does he recognise about Jesus? Remember the two tracks? Who is this Jesus? What does this guy recognise about Jesus? He recognises that Jesus is a guy with authority, that his word has power. He says, if you just say the word, it will happen. Because when I just say come or go or do this, the people under my power, they do it. And Jesus, if you say the word, you just say the word, my love servant will be healed. He recognises Jesus has authority, he has power. And Jesus is amazed, amazed that someone would have such great faith, such great trust. Now, it is a bit of a crazy thing to do, right? If you had a servant, a member of your household, who was incredibly valuable to you and loved by you and they were about to die and you heard of this guy who could come and heal, you would probably actually want the guy to turn up, right? You would want him in the room doing his stuff, you know, waving his hands around or putting his hands on the person or burning his... Whatever the magic stuff sort of was, you'd want him to be doing it, right? This guy says, no, 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 Jesus, I, I believe... You don't even need to turn up. Just say it. It'll happen. Do you see how this guy, he's recognised the truth about Jesus, he's, he's entrusted himself to it, even though it seems a crazy course of action. And yet, he's on the right path, isn't he? He's on the right track. Because his servant, by God's grace, through the power of Jesus, is healed. I think you see this sort of theme illustrated just here with these twin things of Jesus' identity and the power of Jesus' words. What are you going to do with his words? This guy entrusts himself to Jesus' powerful word. Okay, so the next little story that happens there starts in chapter 7, verse 11. Jesus moves on with his sort of entourage to the city of Nain, which is another city in Galilee. And as he's entering the city of Nain, a tragedy is unfolding before his eyes. There is a widow in this city or village whose only son has just died. Now, in that day and age, she's a widow, right? So her husband has died and now her only son has died. This widow is about to become destitute. Like Her life is is in real serious trouble. And as Jesus and his friends walk along, they're coming into the village, they see this funeral happening, they work out, oh, it's a child who's dying, it's a boy, oh, he's the only son of a widow, Jesus, we read there, verse 13, is full of compassion. And so unbidden, he goes up and he raises the boy back to life. An incredible work of power. 
What I want you to notice though is what the crowd says. Verse 16, they were all filled with awe when Jesus did this and they praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Now you, sort of, you and I sort of really go, oh yeah, great prophet, okay, that's all good. No, 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 no. Once again, you've got to have all the weight of the Old Testament in your head as you read that sentence because Luke expects that you know the Old Testament. A great prophet. Really? What, what great prophet? Okay, you've got your Bible there. Turn to Deuteronomy 18. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Important prophecy in the Old Testament. Uh, it's come through the person of Moses. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. Moses is speaking here. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own people. And what are you to do when the Lord raises up this prophet? Notice, because this is really important for what we're doing today. He says, you must listen to him. When the Lord raises up a great prophet like Moses, which he will do one day, you must listen to him. Now flick forward to Deuteronomy chapter 34, the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, which reports Moses' death. Notice what's said here, Deuteronomy 34, the last couple of verses, 10 to 12. And the, the compiler who's sort of brought together the book of Deuteronomy, makes this comment after reporting Moses' death. He says, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. Right? The prophecy we just read was, one day God will raise up a prophet like Moses. The compiler at the time he's compiling says, Well, since then, no, one has, no prophet has arisen like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Fast forward through to the village of Nain. And what, when, the, when Jesus raises this dead boy back to life, what do the crowds say? They say, a great prophet has come. God has come to save his people. Here is the one doing the signs that Moses did, even greater than the signs of Moses. Here is the great promised prophet into our midst. That's telling you something significant about Jesus' identity, isn't it? So you move on in chapter 7 to uh, then verse 18. And uh, John the Baptist, who was, uh, if you have been following us through in the book of Luke, he was the, the one who came before Jesus, talking about the one who would come after him. John the Baptist by this time has been arrested He's been put in prison by Herod, who's sort of the Jewish ruler of the time. And uh, John the Baptist, he's wind of all the things that Jesus is doing and he's a bit confused. He's going, well, you know, because John the Baptist had prophesied certain things about the guy who would come after him, that, you know, he would baptise with the Holy Spirit and baptise with fire and all this sort of, you know, amazing sort of apocalyptic-type language. He hears what Jesus is actually doing and he's not sure. Is Jesus the guy or not? So, verse 18 of chapter 7, John's disciples told Jesus, oh, sorry, John's disciples told John about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, Jesus' answer to John is very interesting. What Jesus says is, Well, go and tell John everything that I'm doing, but he describes it in a certain way. He says things like, the blind tell him that the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the gospel is being preached, the good news is being proclaimed to the poor and the dead are being raised. Why is that significant sort of language? Because the language he's using 
comes straight out of the Old Testament. It comes straight out of a particular chapter, Isaiah chapter 61. In Isaiah 61, there's a prophecy about one who would come, who would be the servant of the Lord. And Jesus is using servant of the Lord language as sort of a message to John the Baptist. John, I'm doing exactly what Isaiah, servant of the Lord, would do. So yes, I am the one to come. And then Jesus says something else about his own identity, but he does it indirectly. It's like if I, if I say to you, um, here is my daughter, and I point at her, or someone else points at her maybe and says, there's Rowan's daughter, that tells you indirectly something about me. Right? Indirectly. What Jesus does is he points at John the Baptist and says, I'll tell you who John was as an indirect way of saying something about who he is. And he quotes Malachi, another Old Testament passage, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He says, John the Baptist is the guy spoken of in Malachi 3.1. In Malachi 3.1, the Lord God says, I will send my messenger ahead of me before I come to my temple. So John the Baptist is the messenger being sent ahead of who? Ahead of the Lord God. So in an indirect way, Jesus is actually saying, yes, I am the one who is coming to the Lord's temple. The Lord is coming to his temple in me. Which is an incredible thing to say. So Jesus is making some comments here about who he is, his identity. But not everyone can accept this about Jesus' identity. Move on. We're into chapter 7, verse 36. Jesus then goes to a Pharisee's house. Pharisees, you might remember from earlier in the semester, the religious, holy people. They really cared about the Old Testament law. They wanted to be pure all the time. He goes to a dinner party put on by Simon the Pharisee. While Jesus is there, reclining at the table, as was the, the custom of the day, sort of lying down on your side to eat, there's a gate crasher into this dinner party. The gatecrasher is the town prostitute. In the text, she's called a, a sinful woman, a woman who is known to be a sinner, which all the commentators sort of say, it seems that this means that she was probably the town prostitute. She walks in, she gatecrashes this holy man's dinner party. Already, surely, that is a bit of a crazy thing to do, right? So what happens is, she comes in, she goes up straight up to Jesus, and she starts crying, she goes up to him and she started crying. She's crying over his feet and then she's drying his feet with her hair. And then she's pouring perfume on his feet. What is she doing? Why is she in such tears? Why has she come to Jesus? I take it it's because she's recognised something about Jesus. In fact, Simon the Pharisee looks at the scene and says, clearly Jesus cannot be a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he would know this woman is a terrible sinner and he wouldn't have anything to do with her. So Simon's decided he can't be the prophet. But actually Jesus' response is, no, no, this woman understands how loved she is. That's why she's come to me. And you can see Jesus' response to this woman is, woman, your sins are forgiven in verse 48. Your faith, your trust in me has saved you. See, here was a woman doing a completely crazy course of action, right? To gatecrash a holy person's dinner party, to start 
crying and drying and anointing the, the feet of this, this, this prophet-like figure, Jesus. What a crazy course of action. But she'd recognised something about Jesus. She'd recognised that in Jesus was the forgiveness that she so desperately needed for the stuff in her life. That she couldn't get fixed anywhere apart from in Jesus. She recognises this truth about Jesus. She entrusts herself to it. And guess what? She's on the right track, isn't she? Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you, even though it seemed crazy. Even though it seemed crazy. And notice the guests still are then perplexed about the identity of this Jesus because they're going, wow, who is this who could even forgive sins? That just seems so... Who who could do that? This same question of Jesus' identity is being raised. Then you come in chapter 8 to what turns out to be a really important sort of pivotal key point in these chapters. Because Jesus tells a story that if you've been around Christian circles at all, you've probably heard it before. It's called the parable of the sower. Jesus is well known as a a teller of sort of these parables, these little stories that make a point. This is a really famous parable. Really famous. And it goes like this. Jesus says a guy goes along and he's got, he's a farmer, he's got some seed, he throws out his seed, some lands on a path, but the birds come and take it away. Some lands in rocky soil, which means it starts to grow, but there's no room for the roots and so they're sort of stunted in their growth. Some seed falls amongst thorns, which means it grows initially really well, but then the thorns grow up and choke it. And some falls in really good soil and yields a massive harvest. He tells the story just like that, and then he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And sits down, stops there. Which frankly is really bizarre. Like, what the heck was that about? Like, what are we meant to take away from that? It's actually left very enigmatic. And you can see that what happens is then the disciples come up to Jesus and say, look, uh, Jesus, what was that about? What, what was the point of that? Like, you know, we're on your side, but that was a bit out there. And Jesus says in verse 11, he says, this is the meaning of the parable. And then he explains it. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear and then the devil comes, takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe that's the word for faith, for trust, believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they don't mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. So some simple things to point out there, right? This this little story is all about what you do with Jesus' words, which I said was one of the themes of this whole section. What do you do with Jesus' words? What sort of soil are you going to be? What Jesus wants is for us to hear the word, retain it, keep it, right? and persevere in it, to keep doing it, to orientate your life around what Jesus actually says. And Jesus backs it up in the next couple of little stories. In uh, verse 18 he says, Therefore consider carefully how you listen. Or uh, in verse uh, 21 he says, "My, My mother and my brothers are not those who are related to me biologically, 
that my mother and brothers are those who, are, who hear God's word and put it into practice. Hearing God's word and doing it is the most important thing. And so the challenge is, what sort of soil are you going to be? And, you know, I've been hanging around the EU for a while now. That's sort of a small understatement. And tragically, I know many, many people who've sat in various lecture theatres across the campus in EU public meetings who are no longer calling themselves Christians. They did then, but they don't now. And the question really is, that's, that's provoked by this parable, is not just, do you trust Jesus now? The question is, what's going to be the story in a year's time? What's going to be the story in five years' time? What will be the story in 25 years' time? Will you be the good soil that has heard the word, retained it and persevered in it? Or will you be the rocky soil? That yeah, you heard the word, but then when that time of testing came, when you got out into the workforce and you ended up working in an office or a group where... Actually, Christianity was not respected. Christianity was dissed all the time. And you just thought, well, do I really want to stand up here for Jesus? Am I really going to be... And it just became too hard. And so you gave up. They couldn't stand it when the sun came out. Will you tragically be the sort of person who, yes, will just get consumed by the rest of life and so Christianity falls away gradually over time, yes, but falls away nonetheless? By life's riches, the establishing of my career. Got to work hard to get a better job so I can get a mortgage, so I get a house. Like, will life's riches crowd out your faith? Will the anxieties of life? Oh, well, you know, I used to be really keen, but then, you know, I got, I got married and then there was my job and then there was the kids coming along and that was just crazy and there was a person who was really sick in my family and that just, that just knocked us for six and I just... I just never got back there. What sort of soil are we going to be? What are you going to do with Jesus' words? So that's the parable of the sower. And then interestingly, straight after, we get some stories that sort of illustrate, I guess, about how not to trust Jesus. This one is about Jesus in the storm. Chapter 8, verse 22. Jesus says to his disciples, let's cross over this Sea of Galilee, go across to the other side. And um, they get on there and we read there uh, that in 23, as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep, a squall came down on the lake. In my, my Bible it says a squall. I didn't know what a squall was. Is it a type of bird? Is it some sort of UFO? I don't know what a squall is. And then, two days ago, Tuesday... Uh, you know the massive storm that came through Sydney on Tuesday. I'm in the car getting home from a lift with somebody and on the radio it said, it's uh, squall conditions have hit Sydney. And I went, oh, so this is a squall. <laughs> that was 120k winds. A squall is like bad, right? It's really severe conditions. And that's why you read here they, the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Can you imagine being on the seas when that storm hit Sydney? 
I wouldn't want to be in a boat. Anyway, this is the situation. The disciples start to freak out. They say, they wake Jesus up, who's asleep, and say, Master, Master, we're going to drown! Which sounds to me to be a very sensible cause of action. Jesus gets up, rebukes the winds and the waves, and suddenly the storm miraculously stops, which is freaky. And then Jesus turns to them and rebukes them and says, Where is your faith? Now, frankly, I'm thinking, what did they do that was wrong? Master, we're going to drown. That sounds like a sensible course of action. What did Jesus want them to do? I presume that what Jesus had wanted them to do was actually go, you know what? There's Jesus asleep. Here's this massive storm. What do we know about Jesus? What truth do we know about Jesus? People who've been around with him the whole time. Hey, remember the other day at Capernaum? Remember how with a word he healed that guy, servant, without even going there. That was amazing. And then do you remember we went to Nain and he raised that dead child to life. Do you remember that? We can trust him, can't we? Alright, so maybe we'll just, we'll just tell him. Excuse me, Jesus. Probably time to do something. We trust you and we're in your hands and we entrust ourselves to you in faith. Not, we're going to drown, goodbye Jesus. Which is sort of, I think, their attitude, right? They didn't act in faith. Right? That's the storm. But you notice what's their question at the end? Who is this? Who is this guy who has such power? And though we could go on, and I'm just going to not go through the rest of them, but um, there's the, they get across to... Uh, the Gerasenes, and there they meet a guy who's got a, who's, uh, got a demon, uh, which has just made a tragedy of his life. Um, and interestingly in that story, who is the one who recognises Jesus? It's the demon who calls Jesus Son of the Most High. That is, calls him the Christ, the Messiah. It's the name for the King. In the Old Testament, it was the King of Israel who was called the Son of God. So it's the demon who recognises Jesus there. The crowd are so freaked out by Jesus' exercise of power in healing this guy, they say, please leave. We don't want anything to do with you. Please get out of our area. Uh, then you meet Jairus, whose daughter is on the point of death. And uh, he begs Jesus to please come. And so Jesus heads off that way. But along the way, a woman who has a terrible bleeding problem is miraculously healed by Jesus. And what Jesus says to the woman is, your faith has healed you. Your trust, right? Again, how do you respond to Jesus? It's trust. That's what's healed you. And just as he says that to her, word comes that Jairus' daughter, who was ill, is now dead. So they say, well, I guess don't bother Jesus. But Jesus says, no, no, no. What have I just said to this woman? Your faith has healed you. He says, just believe. Just have faith. And this one too will be healed. And indeed she is. It's how you respond to Jesus. Jesus then sends out 12 when you get to chapter 9. Sends out the 12 and they go all through the region proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing people. And such is the big sort of news of this event that's going on that even Herod, who's the Jewish ruler of the time, even he then says, uh, who is this guy? Who is this guy I keep hearing about, this Jesus? And then Jesus feeds 5,000 people at once, which is a very uh, impressive but also deeply symbolic action. 
because Jesus heals 5,000 people at once which has echoes of what happened to God's people way back at the Exodus when, Jesus, when uh, Moses sorry, helped lead God's people out of Egypt towards the Promised Land. God miraculously provided food for them whilst they were in the wilderness. Now Jesus is doing something even greater because when he provides people, he provides it himself and there's an abundance left over. It's an even greater provision than what happened back in the days of Exodus. And then comes the key point where Jesus then asks his disciples directly, given all that I've been doing, given all this stuff, who do people say I am? And they have some various theories. You're John the Baptist, come back to life, you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets, whatever. And then Jesus says, well, what about you guys? You've been with me the whole time. Who do you think I am? Right? He puts the identity question up front and centre and he comes back and saying, I think, Peter says, I think you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the Christ. You're the promised King at the centre of all God's plans. That's who you are. And Jesus says, yeah, but do you know what that means? <laughs> That's going to mean that I'm going to be rejected by my own people, that I'm going to be killed and then have to rise back to life again. And then he says, even if you, know, if you want to follow me, that's what it's going to be like for you too. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Because if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. You have to give up your life to actually follow me. Now there's a word of Jesus, isn't it? There's a particular instruction from Jesus. You want to save your life, you have to deny yourself, be willing to lose your life, give it up in order to save it. Do you trust that? Should you trust that? Should you give up everything in order to gain Jesus and follow Jesus? Is it really worth it? How do you know? Why should you listen to him? And where this whole sort of journey through these chapters ends then is I think the high point where these two themes come together of Jesus' identity and what you do, whether you're going to trust his words or not comes together because Jesus goes up on a mountain in chapter 9. He goes up on a mountain in chapter 9, 28 and whilst he's praying he is transfigured. He's trans- he suddenly, his appearance changes and he appears shiny, glorious and along with him appear Moses and Elijah. Now Peter, one of the apostles, go, well, this is pretty cool, let's build three huts, three well, shelters, one for each of you, as though they're all equal. But no, they're not equal actually because the other two disappear and Jesus is the one who's left and it's Jesus' new exodus that they're discussing together, his new great salvation that he's going to... Jesus is the greatest one here. But what you see here, or it's not what you see, it's what you hear here that makes the difference because whilst they're there, then this voice comes, a divine voice and it says... This is my son, whom I've chosen. Listen to him. There's the two tracks, right? Jesus' identity and what you're going to do with his words. This is my son, the Messiah, the Christ, the King. Listen to him. And who's telling you to do it this time? God himself. You want to know whether you should trust the extreme words of Jesus? you want to save your life, you've got to be willing to lose it, deny yourself, take up your cross. You want to know if you should really trust him? There is divine testimony. A voice of God 
that says, here is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. You can have confidence in the promises of Jesus because of the divine testimony to his identity. Let me lead us in prayer as we close. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to trust the words of the Lord Jesus. That we wouldn't just let them skate over the top of our ears. That we would hear what he has to say. That we would retain it and persevere in it. In the power of your spirit that you provide. We pray this, Father, because we want to grab hold of the promises that you have given us in the Lord Jesus. That by denying ourselves and following after him, we might indeed save our life to your praise and glory. Amen. Thanks so much, Ron. Four things, quickly. Firstly, make sure you guys register for AMCON. Secondly, if you want to put your Connect cards in the green buckets as you leave, that will be excellent. Third, we have afternoon tea after public meetings. It's just down there, down to between law and cars law. And finally, um, it takes a lot of effort to put on public meetings uh, each semester. I'm not sure you guys realise, but I want, I want to thank personally everyone who is involved in putting public meetings on, from those who push the trolleys to the ushers. So would you like to join with me in thanking those people? And in particular, there's one person to whom we all owe a great debt for her uh, tireless work and, and sacrifice in loving us and serving us in putting public meetings on, and that's M Lane, and so I just want to thank M. All right, study hard, hope your exams go well. See ya.